life is brighter when we understand the science behind it. Hey everyone! Hello! Welcome back to Getting Brighter, the podcast where we shed light on the science of health, wealth and society. We're breaking down the latest research and providing you with practical tools for positive change. I'm Dr. Emily Hughes, a social psychologist. And I'm soon to be Dr. Marsha Ramska, and I'm a behavioural scientist specialising in health psychology. And today we'll be talking about the psychology of money. Yes. I think this will be a really interesting one because money is something that we all have to face, we all have to deal Mm -hmm. with on the daily, and is also something that we're not generally taught about. You know, we don't learn much about money and how to make good financial decisions Mm -hmm. at school, for example. And we also don't hear much about it from a psychological perspective, which is obviously what we'll be discussing today. And on that note, I think it's important to start off by saying that this episode won't be containing financial advice or specific actions that you should take. So, for example, invest in this index fund or buy this stock. That's not necessarily the business that we're in as psychologists. But instead, we'll be diving into the science to help tell us all a bit more and give us some insight into why we think and act the way we do when it comes to money. Yes, absolutely. So the bulk of the literature we'll be discussing comes from a branch of psychology called behavioural economics, Mm -hmm. sometimes also called financial psychology. And this is really quite a fun and fresh field that's taken (laughs) off in the last couple of decades or so. So people have obviously been looking into decision making and business before, but the psychology around how and why we make money related decisions has not been looked into as much. At the core of behavioural economics is the fact that Our financial decisions and outcomes aren't purely a result of our skill or knowledge around money. They're also, and often quite subconsciously, influenced by our attitudes, our upbringing, our fears and often misconceptions around money. So being aware of those internalised beliefs and attitudes can actually help us explain, evaluate and eventually change those beliefs, which can lead to better financial decisions. Yeah, definitely. So let's get into it. First of all, we thought it would be a good idea to bust some common money myths. And I thought a good one that maybe we could start off with is the idea that economics and finance are cold, hard data and purely number based fields. Yes, I think this is something that's really easy to think at first glance. But actually, the more you look into it, the more you realise it's not necessarily true. So in the words of a famous economist and finance author, Morgan Housel, who wrote an excellent book called The Psychology of Money, he says, any science to do with money is not a math-based field. It's actually a soft social sciences-based field. It's closer to psychology, sociology and history. And what's going to separate the good from the bad, from people who do really well and people who do really badly, it's not your intelligence. It's not your education. It's not your IQ. It's whether or not you keep control over your emotions. Exactly. And even when we think about the markets, like the financial market, this essentially is also just a collection of people making decisions rather than some rational, objective entity. It moves because of people's expectations or their fears and also because of the stories that we as humankind collectively tell ourselves about it. Mm -hmm. And all of this together makes finance one of the very few fields that are quite unpredictable Mm. and where someone with, you know, top-notch education and experience can still be outperformed by someone who maybe got lucky by investing into a stock that then blew up, whereas the same would never happen in medicine, for example. Mm. This also helps explain why even the most qualified people who do this for a job, like financial advisors or fund managers, 
Studies find that they underperform some quite simple and beginner-friendly forms of investment, like funds that just follow a financial index like S&P 500, more than 75% of the time for 2022. This is also why some major monetary bodies that have the biggest experts in the world, like Bank of England or the Fed in the US, can make predictions that later just turn out to be flat out wrong. It's mm. because we cannot predict what's going to happen because it's all based on people's attitudes and decisions. Great. So that's something to keep in mind as a backdrop really throughout this whole discussion. And I think another very common idea or perhaps a very common myth is also that money can buy happiness. A lot of people think that, I suppose. Yeah. And the science here actually is quite counterintuitive. So some people may have heard about a classic study done in the late 1970s that compared lottery winners, so people who had won a lot of money, to paraplegics, so people who had lost the use of their legs in an injury or accident or war, for example. The study looked at the, those two groups of people a time after those events had happened to them both. And interestingly, the lottery winners were no happier than a control group that had neither of those things happen to them. So they'd essentially like regressed back to the mean. Mm. Whereas the paraplegics were only slightly less happy day to day than either of those two groups. So really there was much less of a difference in happiness than one would expect given mm. how extreme both of those situations were. And large correlational studies, so again studies where we look at something that's already the case and then look at associations between them but can't necessarily determine causality. Those studies show that emotional well-being actually plateaus at about $75,000 a year worth of income, which is around £60,000. Essentially, once you're earning more than this, this doesn't really help your happiness or subjective mm. well-being. Other international studies have replicated this finding and show similar numbers, even though there's some variation in global regions, to the effect that richer regions tend to plateau slightly higher, mm. which makes complete sense. Even though there's some other research that does not necessarily agree, showing that satisfaction with life actually continues to improve as income increases past this point as well. But this is with the caveat that the same amount of money doesn't have the same effect on happiness for everyone. So the higher your income, the more additional money you need to make more of a difference to your happiness. Mm. That is to say that the amount of money needed for an effect on happiness is proportional to what you're already making. Yeah. And I guess it's also important to note there that well-being or emotional well-being and life satisfaction are not exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. So well-being is typically measured as your feelings and emotions kind of day to day. So how did you feel yesterday, for example, in the moment? Whereas life satisfaction is this idea of a more general, bigger picture around how you feel, where people are more likely there to consider their privilege and lack of it relative to other people. So that kind of might be why you see those mm -hmm. different findings, mm -hmm. depending on that measure. So I guess what we can see from all of that together is that money does buy happiness, but only to a point. So from then on, it's about a person's expectations and how they deal with different sets of challenges that come with that level of income. So with a higher level of income, you might feel more pushed for time. You might feel stressed about that. And so there are various other things to deal with there. And one of the reasons why simply getting more money doesn't actually make us happier is a psychological phenomenon called hedonic adaptation, mm. which essentially means that over time, we get used to almost any change in our life because our expectations change and our lifestyle changes around any change that has happened. So in other words, we adapt. Mm. And this very much helps explain the study on lottery winners versus paraplegics. Yeah. 
So starting to think about more day-to-day money myths then, it's easy also to think that all ways of spending can make us feel the same. So what's the science on this? Mm -hmm. I love this section. There's so much actionable stuff in Mm -hmm. it already. So the first thing is that studies show that spending on others makes us happier than spending on ourselves. Mm. Some really great work by Elizabeth Dunn and her team gave students $20 so students in a study, they Mm -hmm. gave them $20 each and instructed them to spend that money by the end of the day. Half the students were instructed to spend that money on themselves and half were instructed to spend it on others. What the study showed was that pro-social spending, that is spending it on others, had more increases to well-being. So it made the students feel better than had they kept the money or spent it on themselves. And this effect is observed all over the world, has been replicated many times and across the lifespan as well. It's even been studies in toddlers. Oh, wow. Where obviously <laughs> they, they studied it very differently. Mm. I, I think they were kind of sharing some of their treats or biscuits with yeah. a toy. But the same effect is observed just across the lifespan. Yeah, so sharing is good yes. for them in that sense, yeah. What research also shows is that when spending on ourselves, spending on experiences can make us happier than spending on material goods. So from a review of evidence, it's clear that experiential spending results in more prolonged well-being than material spending. There was an interesting study in 2010, which asked people to recall a $50 material or experiential purchase. And then when they were asked how they felt about the purchase at the time, the groups were equally happy. However, when in the study, they were asked to report how they feel about that spending now, the material purchase group were significantly less pleased with their spent money, whereas the experiential purchasing group even increased in satisfaction. Mm. So they were way happier with what they had done with their money. Yeah, hindsight really is twenty twenty. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and there are a number of reasons for this finding. So one could be because experiential purchasing enhances our social relations with other people more than it does to spend on material goods. Experiential purchases also form a bigger part of a person's identity. So you're going to be doing things that enact identity in that way. And also experiential purchases are evaluated more on their own terms and trigger fewer social comparisons than material purchases. So do I have something that is as cool as what someone else has? You're less likely to compare with experiences versus objects. Yeah. Another way you can increase satisfaction from spending money is by buying your own time or paying for time-saving services. That can make you happier, more relaxed and more in control of your own time. Now, interestingly, when studies ask people if they would rather have more money or more time, most people will say they want more money. However, the proportion of people that actually wish for more time find to be happier overall, even when the current amounts of money they already have are controlled for. So, yeah, this seems to have a correlation with, you know, people who value time more seem to be happier. Experimental research, where they actually manipulate, you know, what people spend on, agrees as well. So a large international study with over 6,000 participants, this is a lot for an Mm. experimental study, gave people two instalments of cash to spend over two consecutive weekends. On one weekend, they were asked to spend on a time-saving expense. That can be things like a house cleaner, a dog walker, or a pre-prepared meal. Whereas on the other weekend, they were asked to spend it on a material purchase. So like a book, an air freshener, groceries, Mm. whatever. And people reported being happier and less stressed after using money to save time than after a material purchase. Mm. This corresponds to the idea that money can give you freedom, which is explained really nicely in that book we mentioned just earlier called The Psychology of Money. I would say this really is an essential read for anyone that's interested in this field. Mm. And actually, what we've spoken a lot about there is spending. But 
What we also find is that sometimes not spending but saving can also make us happiest. We know that debt or financial scarcity are significant causes of stress, anxiety and even depression. So saving can be a really great way to avoid being in that position in the first place. And as a result, there are even groups of researchers arguing for policy approaches that promote and teach thriftiness. They say that this will help reduce overconsumption and be better for individual happiness, the environment and even industry. Yes, absolutely. And just as an aside, all of the above research mostly refers to disposable income. Now, Mm -hmm. of course, we'll all need to spend on ourselves and on material things like, you know, weekly food shops, rent or mortgage and other basic needs. And that is completely fine. But beyond those needs, the way we spend our money definitely does make a difference. So finally, we thought we would address a very infuriating myth that women are irresponsible or less capable with money. (laughs) There is so much wrong with this myth. Um, Not the least of which is that it's not even remotely supported by science. But I think, first of all, it's worth collectively remembering that women were historically just excluded from the game or Mm. from the conversation around money. So women could not actually even have bank accounts or own any property until about... 100 to 200 years ago, depending on where you look at. Yeah, so men have enjoyed a few centuries worth of a head start there. Yeah. That's very recently that we Mm -hmm. were able to own property and have banks. And studies do, in fact, find that women, on average, have lower levels of financial literacy than men. So, for example, a large international report where financial literacy was tested with four questions for basic understanding of interest, compound interest, inflation and risk diversification, it finds that worldwide about 35% of men get at least three of those correct versus 30% of women. Now, this rises to 59% of men versus 51% of women in G7 countries. So it does depend on the region a lot, but we see differences between genders. Mm. Women are also more risk averse and participate in the stock market less. That is that they are less often investing, even though the latter trend is starting to shift. However, when we take that finding and look into it more closely, we see that the picture is much more nuanced. So there's a number of reasons why, when in a test situation, for example, when taking that standardised test of financial literacy, women don't seem to perform as well as men. For example, the degree of gender equality in your home country is shown to have an effect. For example, a study that compared investment risk-taking in Europe, where differences are still relatively small compared to some other global regions, found that Austria, Spain and the Netherlands, where gender equality is quite high, see the same levels of investing in risky assets across genders, whereas in Italy, where there is more gender inequality, women take less risk and in turn see lower profits. Mm. And women's participation and risk attitudes are also determined by the social context within these countries. So studies have found that women become more risk averse in male dominated groups, for example, than in female only or mixed gender groups. And this really mirrors the field of finance, which is, you know, traditionally seen as male, heavily male dominated. When women are in these settings, they're perhaps not going to perform as well because of the social context and all of the stereotypes that that activates. And, you know, stereotype threat, you might feel less able to perform because Mm -hmm. that is so salient to you, I suppose. Yeah. And finance truly is like, I think, still such a male dominated field. Yeah. Like the term finance bro didn't just come out of nowhere. No. Did it? <laughs> a further reason why we might see that difference between genders in studies is that women just are not instilled with the confidence to trust their own financial knowledge. Mm. Whereas studies show that men are in fact overconfident mm. and overestimate their own knowledge. 
in that standard financial literacy test, women are disproportionately more likely than men to answer a question with, I don't know, whereas men tend to put an answer down even if they don't know the answer. And strikingly, this finding holds true across countries. So regardless of the financial literacy level that is Mm. standard for that country or that region. Really interestingly, a recent study showed that when the I don't know option is not available, so that's just not an option you can put down, women are more likely than men to choose the correct option. And that, strikingly, one third of the financial literacy gender gap can be explained by women's lower levels of confidence, Mm. not their ability. Yeah, exactly. That's quite shocking really isn't it and I guess touching on what we just spoke about there is in terms of stereotypes as well this is likely to be a real key factor in explaining Mm -hmm. some of this along with socialization because we know that stereotypes start early and they persist so socialization in the home the attitudes you hold as a teenager from your surroundings and upbringing are likely to already reflect stereotypical beliefs such as boys have a higher interest and ability regarding financial matters Also, there is no gender difference in financial knowledge found among teenagers who do not share male favouring stereotypical views. So the more strongly someone holds a stereotype and agrees with a stereotype, the wider that gender gap. So Mm -hmm. it's likely to be a really key factor rather than actual ability here. Mm -hmm. It's about the context and what's going on. Yeah, exactly. I think there is a lot of unlearning that is involved, particularly for women Mm -hmm. in this space. But once women are in the financial or investing space, studies actually show that women investors are on average more patient once they're in the stock market and therefore more successful so that they see higher returns and fewer losses. This is according to some large reports by financial giants like Wells Fargo and Vanguard, Mm. if you're familiar with companies in this space. When we look at professionals in this space, we see no evidence of a gender gap. So female and male mutual fund managers take the same amounts of risks and deliver equal performance. Mm. So I think a real take home message from all of this evidence is that while women initially appear when they're tested in these studies to have lower financial literacy on average, this might not necessarily be due to the fact that they are less financially literate. There is a difference between possessing the knowledge and displaying it in situ when you're required to perform it. And this is because there are a number of different factors within that performance environment that will influence how you behave on the day. So the gender of the group you're in, how you've been socialised, what you've been led to believe and how confident you've been made to feel by those around you. Mm -hmm. And it all feeds into this feedback loop where if you've been brought up to believe that finance just isn't for girls, you're going to maybe obtain less knowledge on it, Mm. then feel less inclined to participate. And then the cycle just continues. Okay, so having cleared up some of these misconceptions, let's move on to highlighting a few cognitive biases that shape the way we think about money and may often lead us to act less rationally than we'd like. So to begin with, we have a few that just generally shape our ideas and feelings around spending. The first one we wanted to highlight was the anchoring effect. And that is where the first data point we acquire on something disproportionately affects our future thinking about it. So in plain terms, say you're in a shop, you saw a mug with a sticker on it saying £10. And then a shop employee approached you asking, do you want this for £5 instead? You'd think that was a bargain. Mm. If instead they changed the sticker to £15, you'd be like, whoa, that's a ripoff, right? Whereas if that original sticker had instead said £20, you might have thought that the £15 price is a really good price as Mm. well, even though the mug itself had stayed the same throughout. 
Another really important bias is the availability bias or the salience bias. And this refers to overestimating the chances of an outcome based on a handful of visible examples that you're familiar with. So for example, successful CEOs that preach kind of this hustle culture or really famous rags to riches stories. Or on the other hand, visible examples of where people have lost everything. The reality is often much less exciting and there's a whole lot of averages there that we don't see and also a lot of failures that we don't see where people kind of go into detail and tell us their stories of exactly what went wrong along the way. So we kind of need to see all aspects of a story, all sides of that story to make a good informed decision rather than, you know, just seeing that end point. Yes, exactly. Another bias we're all unfortunately subject to is the fundamental attribution error. Now, this is just fancy talk for our tendency to attribute success to our own knowledge or skills, whereas we tend to attribute failure to external circumstances that we didn't have control mm -hmm. over. So, oh, the market was bad or I just got unlucky. On the flip side, we tend to do the opposite for other people. So, for example, if they succeed, we tend to think, oh, they might have gotten lucky. Whereas if they fail, we might say, oh, that was poor judgment. There are also lots of biases that can tempt us to spend less or think twice about a spending decision. The first one here is loss aversion. This is the fact that people are much more sensitive to negative outcomes than to positive ones. That's to say that we feel them more strongly, we remember them more clearly, and that they factor into our later decisions more than positive ones. In practice, this might mean that you would be more upset about losing £20 you currently own than you would be happy to gain an extra £20 mm. that you don't currently have. Loss aversion was first spoken about in a theory called prospect theory, mm. where one of the key studies on this actually showed that loss is emotionally twice as potent, so twice as powerful as success. Now, the degree of loss aversion varies between people, but it can actually be traced back to your brain activation mm. really interestingly. So the areas of the brain that are active when you encourage loss are the same as the areas that are active when you're in danger. So that's the amygdala. When we're anticipating the future, that's a brain area called a striatum. And when we're feeling disgust, mm. that's the area called insula. So we really are hardwired to not like loss. Yeah. And we also know that circumstances determine the degree that you are loss averse to. So we know that people of higher socioeconomic status, that is people with more money or better education, are generally less loss averse. Mm. This makes complete sense, seeing as they're just better able to weather any losses that might come their way. And we also know that people from collectivist cultures are less loss averse than people from individualist mm. cultures. And this is probably because in collectivist cultures, people can rely on each other and their social circle more. Yeah. Whereas in individualist countries, this is not necessarily the case. Mm. So it might make the stakes higher for people from individualist countries. So yeah, loss aversion is a really big factor here and it can lead people to not act with their money or to be more conservative with their money because we all just really, really want to avoid losses. Yeah. So another big one to be aware of is also regret aversion. Now, this means taking an action or not taking an action to avoid regressing an alternative decision in the future. This is essentially science speak for fear of missing out or FOMO. And regret aversion can actually nudge you either way. So it can make you spend more or it can make you spend less. Now, studies find that people tend to overestimate the emotional effect of regret. So are irrationally motivated to avoid it. Tying back to a previous point that we made earlier about experiential versus material spending, 
A large five-study paper robustly showed that buying things more often leads to regret of taking action, so having bought the thing and having spent the money, whereas buying experiences is more associated with a regret of not taking the action, so having not gone somewhere or having not experienced something. And in terms of service providers and good providers, we can see this bias being addressed through things such as money back guarantee schemes. So for example, if a customer is considering buying a product, but the one thing holding them back is that they are not sure whether the product is as good as promised, then having this guaranteed satisfaction or having the ability to get your money back kind of removes the worry around this and also makes people more likely to buy. So studies actually show that retailers offering this option have higher sales and profits because they're able to avoid regret aversion. Mm -hmm. And finally, we've got a handful of biases that are quite conducive to spending and might actually make us spend more. Mm. The first one of which is confirmation bias. This is the tendency to see what we want to see and basically seek out additional information that just confirms what we already believe. That might be that when we have an idea in mind, for example, I'm interested in buying this product, we tend to see it everywhere or take that as confirmation of our initial hunch or idea. Mm. Whereas in fact, we're just better attuned to picking up clues about it. Yeah. So, you know, as a practical example, say you're thinking about buying a pair of Nike shoes. You'll suddenly notice every person wearing Nikes around you and you'll think, oh yeah, everyone's wearing Nikes or like it just makes you think about wanting that purchase more. Whereas the objective number of Nikes around you probably hasn't changed really. Mm. You're also more likely to seek confirmatory evidence as well, aren't you? Mm -hmm. So if you really want to buy something, you might go and seek out good reviews for that product yeah. because it helps reinforce your beliefs and justify your buying decision. Yeah. There are also some really fun and relatable biases that are also still really influential in how we behave. So one is known as the cashless effect. And this is the relative ease of and willingness to spend when paying with an opaque spending mechanism, such as a contactless card or an Apple Pay. And this is something that we don't have, you know, with cash, because I suppose with cash, it feels like you're handing over mm -hmm. a physical entity, mm -hmm. whereas the money perhaps feels less real when you're paying with contactless or Apple Pay. It just sort of disappears and you don't feel it so much. And so you might spend more. Absolutely. There's actually economists out there arguing that cashless spending or a cashless economy will rack up more and more debt mm. per person yeah. because of that tendency to just simply spend more. Yeah. Another fun bias is the bundling bias, which is where we value purchases less if we made them as part of a larger set of things that we've bought relative mm. to if they were bought individually. I think we can all relate to say, you know, having bought an, a bunch of things like doing a haul, if you yeah. will. Um, and then you just kind of, you're like, oh yeah, this is here as well. Whereas yeah. if that were the only thing you bought, you would have been happier about it, I think. Yeah, especially if it gets you free delivery. You're like, oh, keep adding things. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so that brings us on to the next section of the podcast, which is debatable. And this is where we discuss some open questions or points of contention within the literature. So just to start off with, there are a number of ways that we can go about making financial decisions. So would you say that there is such a thing as the right way to think about money or spending or finance? I would say there's no fundamentally right or wrong way. Mm. Again, we're not in the business of financial advice or predictions. And there certainly are ways of being bad with money. Mm. And on the flip side, there is some financial wisdom that's quite widely subscribed to. But from a psychological point of view, the biases that we've just discussed are quite hard to overcome. Mm. And this is consistently shown in studies as well. So even when people are aware of these biases existing and when they have high financial literacy, they are still prone to being biased in these ways. 
However, studies have also looked at how we can reduce the extent of them. And this is best done by, one, being aware of them, for which this episode is very helpful. Yeah. You're welcome. And number two, actively trying to correct for the direction in which the bias might be nudging us towards. Yeah. So, for example, if we're trying to reduce anchor bias, this was the one where the first data point we have on something will disproportionately influence our thinking about it. Yeah. Then we might want to be conscious of the fact that our anchor point is not necessarily representative and then looking for more alternative data points so that we have a better overview. Yeah. And it's kind of a very similar sentiment to things that we spoke about in our second episode. So the episode around choice architecture, things like biases and anchoring and, mm -hmm. and nudging, they're all things we spoke about before. And the idea that awareness is really important, but over and above that, it's about mm -hmm. how we can go about thinking, how do we avoid this? How do we stop ourselves being swayed or mm -hmm. nudged in these certain directions? And yeah, hopefully this episode is useful for that. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I think with finance and money, the right way or the, the right way to act and to spend it will always depend on the individual, yeah, on absolutely. your situation. And even this will change over time. Yeah. And I suppose another question that's important to consider, given that the stories we tell ourselves about money can be so influential in how we behave, is whether we're able to change our money mindset or mm -hmm. change these stories that we tell ourselves about spending and finance. Because one thing that we know from psychology is that some crucial money related characteristics such as risk tolerance or risk seeking are personality driven and they can also be pretty stable over time. So, for example, you might find that risk tolerance is positively correlated to level of openness to experience. So if you're higher in tolerance, then you are more open to that experience. But is it the case that personality is everything here or can we move beyond this? So while we do see that some of our beliefs and kind of starting points are tied up to our personality and upbringing and past experience with money, much of it is still malleable. Mm. So, for example, as your financial literacy increases, you are more likely to correctly estimate your skills mm -hmm. and that can lead you to make better financial decisions. So in investing, for example, you're more likely to not invest too riskily, but equally not kind of underinvest. Mm. And then equally, being more aware of your own risk tolerance and loss aversion, so kind of where your comfort zone is when it comes to money, can help you be more conscious about your decisions. And it allows you to sometimes override those impulses mm. if you judge that that is in your best interest. For yeah. example, if you are trying to kind of stretch out that comfort zone, or equally, you can embrace that, that risk tolerance and your loss aversion mm. if you judge that they are calibrated quite well to your comfort zone. Yeah. Okay, so the final section of the podcast today is doable. And this is where we give you some actionable steps based on the science that we've just discussed. So we know that there's a lot of information there in today's episode and it might feel overwhelming. But to sum up, here are the steps you can take to think more clearly about money and how to spend it more wisely. First, consider your own attitudes towards money and your patterns around handling money and consider why this might be the case. How were you raised to think about it? Are there any patterns you detect that you would like to change? There's plenty of excellent resources out there for doing so, whether that be books, podcasts, financial advisors or even therapists. Secondly, it's also really important to try and remember the biases that we discussed. This means that you'll be better able to catch them at play. And when it comes to disposable income, science suggests you do the following. Buy for others, not for yourself. So things like donating to charity or supporting a cause you are passionate about will instantly boost your mood. It could also be great to try and buy experiences rather than things. So ideally try and share these experiences with those that are closest to you and this will enable you to make happy new memories. Leave it to M to recommend <laughs> being in a group. Yeah, it'll be great, I promise. <laughs> Next, 
try and trade money for time when this is possible. So this could be paying to have something fixed or cleaned, and that just might make you happier than saving the money or having to spend time and effort doing it yourself. Or you could think about not spending and saving instead. Your future self will likely thank you for it. It might also be helpful to remind yourself that money is nowhere near as strong of a predictor of happiness as we might think it is, and that things like social relationships and health are much more important in the long run. Exactly. And this episode by no means provides an exhaustive list, but hopefully provides you a useful introduction to the field of behavioural economics. So if you're interested in learning more or would like to hear us dig deeper into any specific aspect, let us know and we'll consider doing a follow-up episode in a potential further series, potentially even with a guest expert. That would be fun, wouldn't it? That'd be really interesting, (laughs) yeah. Would enjoy that. Okay, so that is it for today. Hopefully we're all feeling a little bit more money savvy now. Mm -hmm. Thank you everyone for tuning in and listening. If you're getting brighter from this podcast, then make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Music or wherever you get your podcasts. Once you're there, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a review of anywhere up to five stars. If you have any feedback, questions or suggestions for future episodes or if you're just nosy and want to put faces to the names then you can find us on all of our socials at get brighter pod and if you're a bit more old school we also check our emails at getbrighterpod at gmail.com and we'd love to hear what you have to say we'd like to thank the southwest doctoral training partnership for supporting this podcast and to finish off with our disclaimer The Getting Brighter podcast is separate from our research and teaching roles at our respective universities. However, it is part of our shared passion for communicating science in an accessible and enjoyable way. Any advice given does not consider your unique individual circumstances and we encourage you to seek professional guidance before making any significant lifestyle changes. Bye team. See you next time.